0: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
1: Solidarity forever!
3: And good morning, it's Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. Lolith has gone off to the uh, conference in Sydney, the socialist conference in Sydney, so we can expect. Many reports and interesting discussions coming from her journey. But I'm sitting in for her while she's away. Now, what are we going to talk about today? We've got coming up, uh, I'm I'm revisiting the Trans-Pacific Partnership as uh, um, it's a very important issue that's coming up. Uh, It's entering into the parliamentary phase where it's supposed to be passed through our Parliament in order for it to make its journey on to uh, become uh, it becoming so, but uh, so I thought that it would be really important to go back again and revisit the event that happened in Melbourne on the twenty first of April uh, There was a one of the international speakers was uh, Professor Jane Kelsey from uh, the New Zealand Auckland uh, University. She's a professor of law there. And uh, what we've got today is uh, her explaining how they got 25,000 New Zealanders onto the streets protesting against the TPP. And uh, so that's the first thing that we're going to do. Chris White, who is a um, long-term union uh, person, uh, recently, went over to Chicago and uh, took some recordings from some of the meetings at a enormous labour conference in Chicago, that uh, you know a couple of weeks ago. In fact, only about uh, two weeks ago. So it's hot off the press. And the little excerpt I've got is from a, a panel that was a panel discussion that was uh, about Black Lives Matter. Uh, it's um, it was put on by the U.S. law uh us labor against war sorry um us labor against war and it's quite interesting because it talks about uh it's it goes through some issues uh, about, around how an issue like black lives matter uh intersects with some of the uh, important lessons and uh, strength of the Labour movement. So it's quite an interesting thing to listen to, I I feel. Uh, Following that, of course, we've got This Is The Week That Was, and uh, we're going to then talk to Humphrey McQueen uh, about banks and uh, how they shape, help to shape the politics of Our Fair Land Spoken Word, Radiothon
6: 2016, Fundraiser. Come support 3CR and hear four fantastic poets, Sandy Jeffs, Peter Bukowski, Benjamin Sola and Judith Rodriguez. Just come along to Hare's and Hyena's Bookshop in Fitzroy, on the 29th of May at 7pm. Only ten bucks to get in, all proceeds to 3CR. Open mic section included.
3: Sandy Jeffs is a fantastic poet. I'd be down there if I was around. That's exactly where I'd be, Uh, the Hereth and Hyenas, which is in Johnson Street. Now, as I said, the Trans-Pacific Partnership has been causing waves as the free deal trade is making its way to the parliaments of the countries involved. Now, the anti-TPP campaign has hit a strong nerve point in New Zealand. And as I said, 25,000 people actually went to last month to... They went off to the streets to voice their lack of enthusiasm for the treaty And at the recent TPP event in Melbourne, Professor Jane Kelsey, Professor of Law at Auckland University, outlined how the anti tpp campaign worked in New Zealand and how it was possible to get 25,000 people onto the streets. Professor Jane Kelsey.
0: I'd like to uh, pay my respects to uh, the traditional owners of this land, uh, or a, as we would say uh, in New Zealand, "Kia Tangata Whenua, Te wā Te You need to use your imagination. Right? Go back to the 4th of February this year, Thursday lunchtime. Imagine the main street of the largest city in New Zealand. Imagine 25,000 people marching down that street. At the front of it, the people of Ngāti Whātua, the um, tribe of, of Auckland, issuing a challenge, a haka. These were people who on a lunchtime, weekday, came out to say that they did not want the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement which was ironically being signed at that time in the Sky City Casino where rather than the traditional welcome that you would see from the Ngāti Whātua they refused to do it. All the government could scrape up was for Māori to do a downgraded welcome that was a quite extraordinary event in our country if you had asked me six years ago whether we would get 25,000 people out protesting against a so called free trade agreement I would have looked for the little flock of flying pigs but we managed to do that, and I want to talk uh, a bit about how that campaign was built, but first I want to reflect a little on why New Zealanders became so exorcised about this agreement. New Zealand had the infamy of being known as Chile without the gun, where our neoliberalism left yours for dead, I'm afraid. Um, And after how many years? 1984, so 30 plus years, New Zealanders don't believe in the miracle that we were promised. And in a sense, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement not only represented the failed neoliberal agenda, but represented a mechanism for embedding or locking that in at a time when people were demanding change. And so one of the points of resistance was actually this big-picture context that people didn't want more of the same failed old paradigm. A second reason was also contextual... New Zealanders aren't great fans of the United States. There are long memories of the anti nuclear policy. People remember the bullying that took place. New Zealanders pride ourselves on being independent, and we don't like being pushed around by other countries or by big business. And that irrespective of what was in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, was another reason why people felt really uncomfortable about the deal. A third reason was that people had seen over time the erosion of parliament and parliamentary democracy and the growth of executive power and executive decision-making. So when we had a negotiation where a government said, this shall be conducted in secrecy and we will not tell you what is being done, trust us democracy, people didn't want it. People didn't trust. Indeed, people didn't trust Not just because of the secrecy, but because of the arrogance that went along with the secrecy. The only reason you want to see what's in this agreement is so you can stop it happening, according to our trade minister. Well, if you can't justify it in the public domain as part of an open debate, then it's not a good agreement. For Maori, this was yet another agreement that was going to give foreign states and foreign corporations rights in their land through a treaty that would trump the treaty they had signed in 1840 with the British that promised that their rights would be protected and their resources would be preserved to them. These were all part of a context that meant the time was right for a campaign against these kind of agreements. And the TPPA, because it was seen as the US+, plus, originally 8 and then 11, epitomised everything that was seen as a threat to our future. And so, when the negotiations began back in 2010, some of us reflected on the ways that we might harness these sentiments, which were at that time embryonic, and create a really significant resistance. One of the things that we did first was to think about how to rebrand what was being portrayed as a free trade agreement. Free trade agreements are seen as intrinsically good things. How can a trading nation be opposed to a free trade agreement? One of the things that we did first was to rebrand the name. We said this is not about a trans-Pacific partnership. There is nothing partnership about this. Not only is it not a partnership that involves us, the people, but it's not even a partnership between the countries that are involved. It's the US plus the rest. This is an asymmetrical, unequal bargaining table we said it's certainly not a partnership in the warm, fuzzy sense that the term is, is being used. So we rebranded it very deliberately right from the start as the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the TPPA. And I did a, an early talk across on the beautiful Waiheke Island and one of the people at the back says, I know why we call this the TPPA, it's about taking people's power away. And that became one of the key slogans right from the start, TPPA, taking people's power away. People got it, simple, easy to connect with. And then we rebranded it as not being about a trade agreement because even though they wouldn't tell us what the 30 chapters were, those of us who had been tracking it knew pretty quickly what they were, And only about six of the 30 chapters were about old-fashioned commodity trade. Indeed, the champions of the agreement said, this is a 21st century agreement that is about putting disciplines on governments behind the border in ways that no previous agreement has done. Disciplines behind the border is code for putting handcuffs on the rights of future governments to make policies and regulations based on domestic priorities and imperatives by elected governments. So when you looked at chapters, whether they were the financial services chapter, the telecoms chapter, the investment chapter, the services chapter the medicines, transparency annex, the intellectual property rules, the chapter on regulatory coherence and so on, they were all about putting handcuffs on future governments. And once you described the rules in that way, people understood again how this connected to embedding of neoliberalism, empowering the beneficiaries of neoliberalism, the 1%, the agreement for the 1%, they're taking people's power away. Again, simple messages that didn't require people to understand all of the details of the agreement, to understand what, in fact, the dynamic was.
3: You are listening to Solidarity Breakfast, and we're having uh We're... <laughs> We're listening to Professor Jane Kelsey, who's from the Auckland University. She is a professor of law. And we'll continue with what she has to say. She was speaking at a uh, TPP uh, sp- uh, talk at uh, Melbourne, Univ- uh, Melbourne Town Hall on the 21st of April.
0: We also then thought that we needed to have some kind of loose umbrella organisation that would help to coordinate a campaign. There was quite a lot of talk about what to call it. And a very conscious decision was made not to use a negative term, stop the TPPA, or some kind of of, um, campaign resistance slogan we opted very consciously for something that would resonate positively that people could rally behind. And so our campaign has been called It's Our Future. And so It's Our Future provided a framework for a whole range of networks. Not an organisation, not a big secretariat, a <laughs> handful of people working out through a variety of networks. And it has a number of layers. Our goal was to set the terms of the debate, that we were going to define what the debate in our country was about. And it was helped by the fact that the government refused to say anything and by its arrogance that nobody actually needed to bother their simple little minds about it. And we very successfully did that to the point that the government constantly was on the defensive, having to respond to whatever we were putting out. So how was this done? Well, at one level, an important thing was about setting the credibility of the analysis. Right from the very beginning, we had a round table of academics from Australia and New Zealand who reflected on the experience of USFTA here and elsewhere. We put a book out. We invited Laurie Wallach over from the US. We did a lecture tour around New Zealand. We did a lecture tour uh, and book launches around Australia. We got um, briefings of the major media. We started to educate them, and we developed a credibility at the level of the knowledge base that meant that this was taken seriously. And that layer is really important. You have to have good, robust, credible analysis to go alongside the activism. The second thing that we did was start to reach out to a variety of communities and try to involve them in very creative ways. We did a cartoon competition where we got some prizes and where we got lots of amateur and professional cartoonists providing us with brilliant cartoons that we had cartoon exhibition that travelled around the country but also gave us cartoons that we could use for campaigning. We got celebrities to do a celebrity video around a petition against the secrecy. We ran it on television. They were well-known television uh, and, and uh, television stars and musicians. And once they'd been on TV a little bit, we then went out into the social media and ran it through the social media. And the petition was extremely successful. <laughs> We got about 25,000 signatures up, and this was in the early stages uh, of, the, of the campaign. In addition, we um, started to uh, develop um, clusters of people in local communities. We had a team who were doing Facebook, and there were local organisers who popped up all around the country saying I don't like this I want to organize something in my local community so by the time we had the second ministerial meeting in New Zealand in 2012 we had protests on a National Day of Action in 25 towns and cities around New Zealand some of them there were five or ten people some of them small towns there were about 300 Auckland we managed to get about 10,000 We had different props that we had that made sure that they were media friendly. And so we started then to build clusters around the country of people who were then going and talking to their local communities and talking to their local councils. From there, there was a team who set up, there's an Australian called Greg, who has been travelling around the country in his van going and working with people from local council to local council, passing the same resolution in a whole series of councils throughout the country. Then taking the pressure back to local government New Zealand. The pressure has gone on through Māori in a whole variety of arena. Uh, Māori, as, as with uh, indigenous Australians, are very locally focused, And there are issues in each area, in particular around mining and fracking and water and so on. And so those who have been campaigning around those issues there then became focused around the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement as a vehicle that would stop the government from being able to honour its obligations to them. And so they then lodged uh, a claim before an entity called the Waitangi Tribunal which exists to inquire into the government's breaches of the Crown's obligations to Māori. Eventually, the tribunal agreed to an urgent hearing on uh, on the treaty claim. That started last July. It's just concluded, and we believe that the claim is going to succeed. The government has found ways to circumvent it, but... It has created a real political momentum of the kind that we saw in the march down Queen Street. In a country as small as ours, Māori politics resonates very loud. There is, uh, around the public health area, uh, a campaign that has developed by a wonderful group called the Doctors for Healthy Trade. Doctors have real credibility. When the doctors say this is going to cause real problems for access to affordable medicines in the future, people listen. And so we've had all of those kinds of campaigns amongst others that have had a real impact. The unions, which used to be very wussy around these agreements, especially when the Labour government was in power, have now become strongly opposed to the agreement. They have put pressure on the Labour Party and the Labour Party as a party has a position of opposing the agreement. The Labour Party in Parliament is sitting on the fence and is creating uh, problems for itself because the political climate amongst their supporters is such that they aren't going to be able to get away with maintaining the fence-sitting position. And so it is the momentum in the communities and in the constituencies that has shifted that ground. One has been to uh, challenge the secrecy of the negotiations, not only by using the leaked texts, um, which various of us have had a role in analysing, and in attending the negotiations so that we can actually find out what's going on and bringing the information back. And I actually managed to get funding from the New Zealand Law Foundation to go and monitor the negotiations because it was the only way of educating New Zealanders about what was actually happening. So when you've got mainstream groups like that who are prepared to support that work, again it adds a credibility. But what I did that also got a lot of media on side was that we made, um, you have a Freedom of Information Act, I think you call it. Um, I made requests under the Official Information Act for a variety of, uh, of documents because the European Union Ombudsman, in the parallel negotiations between the US and the EU, had said, these agreements are now so significant for the impacts on citizens of Europe that you cannot conduct them under the form of secrecy that's been done. And so I then took what she'd said, made a request under our Official Information Act for exactly the same categories of documents, and the minister came back with a typically arrogant response of saying, "Uh, I'm not going to release anything. And then it became apparent that he had said that without looking at a single document. And so we took him on judicial review to the courts and managed to get a group of important organisations to support it. Consumer New Zealand was one of the co-applicants. I think choice is what your entity is here. Ngati Kahungunu, one of the, the major tribes, Oxfam, Greenpeace, Council of Trade Unions and so on. And we won that case against the minister. Now that was a victory that was really important in getting the media on side as well because they hate the way that the government treats the Official Information Act. And so it was part of ways of challenging and marginalising the government. We crowdsourced and got $30,000 of donations to pay the legal fees. We won the case so we got costs. We now have a um, a, a pool of money to be able to continue fighting uh, a legal dispute.
3: You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. I'm sitting in for Lalitha, who has gone to the uh, Socialist Conference in Sydney. And we're listening to uh, Professor J- uh, Jane Kelsey, who is a professor of law at the Auckland University. And she's outlining how the anti-TPP campaign worked in New Zealand. And uh, we'll just hear her final comments. F- fascinating uh, uh, uh inspection of a, a successful political campaign.
0: When I said this negotiation is not of 12 equal parties, there is a particular reason now why that is so significant. For the agreement to come into force, it either needs to be by consensus or by five or more parties who have 85% or more of the GDP of the 12? That means that the US and Japan have a veto power on the agreement coming into force. The US will not bring the agreement into force with a particular country until that country has implemented what the US says the agreement requires it to do. That means the US interpretation of the commitments a country has made need to be complied with before the agreement comes into force with Australia or New Zealand. There is a website that I would invite you to go to called tppnocertification.org. This is called the certification process. It shows how the US has gone around different countries in the past Required them to submit their legislation to the US for approval before it's submitted to the local parliament. Written the legislation for those countries. Gone down to the parliament in those countries to monitor what's happened. Demanded that countries have done things that aren't in the agreement. Demanded that countries have done things that they said they wouldn't agree to. Otherwise the agreement won't come into force. Australia itself encountered that with the Australia US FTA, where you passed a Copyright Act that the US said didn't comply with the Australia USFTA from the US viewpoint. You then had to pass new copyright legislation that went through the Senate Select Committee in 24 hours. People had three hours to make submissions. No changes could be made so that it could come into force on the due date. So this is the kind of blackmail bullying that the US will use In certification. A story came out three days ago that the US Trade Office has now sent officials or is sending officials to New Zealand and Australia to discuss the implementation of the agreement in ways that the US Congress will find acceptable. That is going to happen in the next week or two. After that, the ministers will be meeting in Lima in mid May where the pressure will go on to make these additional concessions so that they are able to get the legislation introduced to the Congress, which cannot now get through the Congress until after the presidential election, but they want to get it through before the new president takes office because then a new president is likely to want to go back and renegotiate even more. So there is going to be a lot of behind-the-scenes pressure taking place on our governments to make more concessions than we have currently in the text that we have seen. It will again be done in secret. And because of the pact that they have made that no documents on this agreement will become public until four years after it comes into force, which is six years at least from now, you will not be able to hold to account those who made those political decisions unless we can force some daylight into these transactions.
4: A new illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. Grecia has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or pick
0: up your copy at the station.
3: And before we move on to our recorded piece from the Chicago Labor Conference... Uh, which is focused on the uh, intersection between social justice issue, the uh, Black Lives Matter and the Labor movement, uh, I'd let you know that there's a, a whole activist calendar has uh, adhered to me over the last few days. I've got a whole range of things to tell you about. So after the program at 11am on at the City Square in Melbourne today, is a Stand Up for Equal Pay rally. Uh, they've been uh, calling people to come to this particular event for quite a while now, and uh, if you've got any uh, a bone of uh, sense of social justice, Standing Up for Equal Pay is a perfect place to lend your voice. That's 11am City Square today. Uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow on Monday... Oh, sorry, on Monday there is going to be a protest at 8am at uh, the Royal Women's Hospital. It's uh, to highlight the cuts to diagnostics, pap smears and other such important medical procedures that are in the uh, latest federal government uh, p- a budget. And uh, apparently Turnbull is going to be there uh, strutting his stuff uh, Leading up to the election So he's gone to He's going to apparently be at the Royal Women's Hospital 8am on Monday That's uh, May the 16th These are all Melbourne messages So uh, go down there And uh, it's uh, been organised By the Trades Hall And uh, Go down there and be part of the uh, uh, Highlighting of The cuts to our medical system Which we as people Can really uh not afford there's going to be an action on 19th of may 5 to 6 p.m. it's uh, to highlight uh, the uh, the 711 wage scam and it's going to be at 263 burke street melbourne uh, that's 263 burke street which is 711 melbourne uh, and it's been organized by unite the uh, union that uh, deals, has, was part of the whistleblowing uh, against the 7 wage scam. Uh, also, there's going to be a Chasing um, Asylum. I don't know if you know about this film, but A Chasing Asylum is uh, a great wrap-up of all the things that have happened uh, in, the, in terms of Australia's connection to uh, asylum seekers who have tried to reach Australia by boat. In fact, I left the uh, screening that I saw yesterday feeling that Australia is acting illegally, that we are uh, basically a criminal nation uh, in relation to uh, asylum seekers. It was uh, It's quite uh, sobering and uh, it's uh, quite an interesting film because it's had to piece together a lot of uh, its information Uh, through illegal filming, effectively, because, of course, detention centres, Manus Island and Nauru, uh, it's illegal to actually tell everybody what's being paid for, what the $1.2 billion a year is paying for. It's certainly not going to the refugees or the conditions that they live in. So, obviously, it's for the company, the private company, that... Imprisons these people, and they are—they're treated like criminals. When and it's really uh, interesting because you do a um, a facts check while you're watching it. And you think, but actually, these people aren't criminals. This isn't a criminal act. Asking for asylum, anyway. It's a fascinating film, uh, "Chasing Asylum," and it's there's going to be a fundraising event for the Refugee Action Collective, seven p.m. Thursday, the twenty-sixth of May. Sun Theatre in Yarraville. So that's a perfect way of seeing a, a pretty amazing film, I'll have to say. Anyway, that's me. I'll stop yabbering and get on with uh, the meat and potatoes of this program, Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, Black Lives Matter panel at the Chicago Labor Conference. Quite extraordinary piece of uh, thing to get. Uh, and thanks very much, Chris White, for your contribution.
6: Uh, oftentimes, unions go into communities and say, we want you to get down on Friday 15, so like, come sign on to this campaign. And you're not actually building power building engagement with these communities, right? And so how can you move from having a transactional relationship to starting as our baseline is this reciprocal relationship. You're invested in that community's long-term self-determination, long-term economic stability, and then really moving to transformative relationships. Where you're not just saying what can we both get out of this interaction that we both need, but you're saying let's change the context in which we're having this very conversation. So we're not always on the defensive game, wondering what the bosses are doing, but we're changing the game for workers in America.
4: Um, I think what that raises for me is really the importance of building power intersectionally. And I think again, bringing up like workers, you know, for workers being a worker is not their only identity right and making sure that we're talking about all the intersections with race with gender with sexuality with all the different identities and and making sure that it's not just about okay this is the one campaign that we need everybody to work on but talking about what other what other struggles exist in this community and how can labor with the resources that it has with the political resources, with the financial resources, also be working on these various struggles simultaneously uh, to build a broader and intersectional coalition. API well Asian communities, you know, within and um, outside of unions as well, I want to talk about how the Asian community is not a monolith, right? And we don't all have the same struggles, we don't all have the same concerns, we don't all have, you know, and. Malara well, said, "Liberation looks different for for everybody." Um, and I think so. Understanding, like listening to what uh, Asian workers in your unions are talking about, what their demands are, what their concerns are, and also as making sure that they're it you know, that the leadership of the each of the organizations are reflective of the members, and that you know that there are opportunities for for workers of color to also uh, take leadership positions. Um, and talking about when immigrant communities are pushing for a just immigration system, for a stop to deportations, that unions are taking an active role in that and also understanding that, that immigration enforcement is using immigration as a threat against immigrant workers that are trying to unionize and making sure that putting, like, unions are putting resources into fighting that um, and creating more opportunities for immigrants to unionize as well. Talking about language access, Uh, Making sure that all the workers, you know, get to be part of the decision-making process. Um, And it's not just done in English. But we need to be talking about how corporations are exploiting the capitalism and exploiting the laws to exploit workers in these other countries. um, So that the language is not also anti-immigrant as well. Um, And I can go on, you know, talking about homophobia and transphobia in your communities. and how that is such an important role for, that tackling those issues is important for the whole community. Um, talking about access to affordable healthcare, et cetera. So, um, and I also want to talk about when we're working, for example, on holding Walmart accountable for their for poverty wages, I also want for us to expand our lens and, talk, and thinking more transnationally as well about how the whole supply chain of Walmart is unjust, unjust, and that you know that we're also holding Walmart accountable for the sweatshops that are prevalent in Asia, in the Asia Pacific, and holding them accountable for that. You know, not just uh, here in the United States, but across the whole supply chain as well.
7: The issue, and what we see right now, in the, the movement for Black Lives, and its relationship to imperialism and capitalism, and what uh, an analysis that would be historical in the sense that. Uh, Black people, African people—I use the term African more readily—are a disposable population in the United States as a result of the history. The labor, our labor here, was brought as enslaved people, and it was free. And then, as, then as slavery became abolished, and I, so then you see a labor movement arise, and uh, as a result of trying to, you know, harness control over our, our labor in the face of capitalism and industrial capitalism. Um, now, though, we see imperialism and outsourcing, mecha-nations, you know, technology, and where now there's no need, even for wage labor, right? So it makes the most exploited people, or of the most exploited people in this country, African people, disposable, a surplus population, and it's playing out as we see it in terms of our relationship to the police and all of that. Um, and then also, you know, this, also, this is a settler, if you remember, this is a settler colony, in other words, people settle here, stole land, the, the indigenous people, if, if you look at the statistics, why quite as it kept, indigenous people, uh, um, Native Americans or American Indians, people say, are actually more susceptible to being co- killed by the police than black people. Mm-hmm. You know, they're more killed more often by agents of the state, but we don't really get to hear about that, but it, it actually, both of these things speak to the fact that this is a settler colony and this settler project uh, as being affected by the evolution and the stage of, of imperialism that we're in right now, um, and so we also one thing while labor, the labor movement and workers and the worker movement, <coughs> excuse me, has had and has always been has the potential to be the most revolutionary of movements. It also has is susceptible uh, to actually and more insidiously than anything else, undermining uh, social progress and revolution, the overthrow of capitalism. Um, and imperialism, and so, and we can see it in so many ways. And so, uh, and I don't want to so, it, and, and I don't want to get too far off track. But the concentration of the institutions of labor, I don't know how many people are familiar with the, um, the U.S. Of, or um, the labor's in, uh, complicity with the State Department and through the Solidarity Center and you know through the, you know all this is uh, and overthrowing other countries, democratically elected leaders, all that kind of stuff, um, and we can see this so many places. Now the rank and file, of course, are not responsible for this, but then we have now the professional labor union of labor workers, they're professional, right, and that's what they do, they're not workers per se, organizing to have power with their fellow brother and sister workers, but actually are, you know, the hierarchy has developed. I don't want to get too far off the track here, but it's very important to understand the complexity of this complex that we have. So there's an industrial labor complex, too. We talk about industrial non-profit complex. So it's the same thing. So those of us who are a little bit, uh, that are lower on the total pole of this have less power, and also difference in ideology, a difference in how we look at the world and how complex it is. Um, and so right now we have people who are the leaders who negotiate the degree of exploitation of the workers with the capitalist system. They negotiate the degree. They don't like what Amalara talked about. Think of the eradication of capitalism and the, trans, you know, the transforming of the system. Kwame Nkrumah, the, the first president of uh, Ghana, said uh, the movement, uh, the labor movement and the workers' movement and the unions must be seen as an intermediate step toward revolution. But without that, then we only can be negotiating the degree of exploitation by capitalists. So we don't want to just look at the outsourcing of Walmart. We want Walmart to be converted and trans- converted into a co-op in which all its workers anywhere in the world, no matter what color, are able to have control, complete control over their, their production and what they do. Uh, and people say, well, that, <laughs> that can never happen. What a novel idea. Well, it was at one point, a point in history where there are people saying There's always going to be slavery. It will always be slavery. And so now we can see as radically, yes, we're very far off and it was a hard role. People lose their lives in the in this struggle, but we cannot take the position, well, this is just the way it is and all we can do is the, negotiate the degree of exploitation and repression that we have. But this is how all of this interplays imperialism and capitalism and uh, black lives uh, and you know the racism. The unions, and this is a lot, the workers, and the work, organized workers have given us so many means of have actually made to a science how we can organize with people, organize people, and disseminate ideas, and, and grow, and and, and even apply a popular education, respect the genius of people. But it's even been co- that's even been co-opted. So now we even have uh, which are workers. I don't want to offend anyone, but sometimes just uh, the police have unions. They actually organize. They organize to justify the extrajudicial killing of black people and not want the, the state, the system, to acknowledge that we are killed at a rate of every 20 hours in this country. They fight against it. story about the, the United Nations Working Group came here. The United Nations Working Group uh, for people, experts, the people of African descent, uh, we were able to be the anchor group and the State Department, they also had to do with the State Department, and they said, well, the, the, the anchor group is supposed to help you organ- uh, get with the civil societies, which was considered the federal order of police, uh, and we're supposed to make that connection with them. We're like, no. The state has that connection more than we do. But anyway, this is how crazy things have become. And we also have to, go back to what Sam was talking we have to have some kind of mass political education, and the workers' movement is best poised to make that happen. Uh, and there has to be a conscious and deliberate break with the institutions and the state power that
6: facilitates capitalism. Is a room full of union, union leaders? What kind of strategies or tactics could they employ to, to kind of put all of our ideas into practice? Um, so the the question I have for Sam is what does actual solidarity with the working class mean and what does it look like in the union context? I think it's something we throw around a lot and we assume because some of our members are working class or we come from a working class background that just naturally our union structure is in solidarity with them. But tell me your thoughts on that and what it would look like to actually align our our vision with our practice. For me
5: Solidarity with the working class is, is uh, easier uh, because I I grew up um, in a single parent household uh, and I know uh, a big a big focus for the working class is just sustainability. How am I going? Where is my next meal coming from? Am I going to be able to keep on? Like which which bill am I going to have to sacrifice to pay this other bill? Um, so if and, and in the labor movement you have to. Do you have to think about a lot on like the macro level about and like making these big decisions? Um, but there's a lot of like smaller things that I think uh, should be thought about. Um, and like how how are these big decisions like how are these big things on a macro level going to impact people and like the uh, in the on on the smaller level. Um, and like if you want if you want people to come out to an event or, or something in support of um, uh, even even just like a kind of informational event like this, um, how are, 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 are we offering like are we offering child care for those people who, who might have children? Uh, are we offering transportation? like are we are we really uh, organizing from a standpoint of like thinking about the kind of obstacles that the working class has to has to go through themselves. Um, and I think a big part of solidarity in general is just listening. Um, and I mean, like I said earlier, before you can really move on something, I think you need to have a really solid understanding of what the problems are. And oftentimes people, if you did not grow up in the working class environment, um, you just don't. You just don't know what those struggles are like. You don't know, and, you, and you're trying to solve these problems for, for or with these people, and you don't understand. Like you don't know what like a day-to-day um, experience for them is is like. So, um, and and accessibility is also a big a big thing. Um, and one of the things that I'm doing right now at work is we have our union has a really good contract, and but it's it's full of uh, legal jargon um, and we have a lot of our members are um, don't speak a lot of English uh, and have a have been uh, undereducated in general um, so one of the things I'm working on at work right now is just trying to uh, take these uh, take a lot of these cons these great rights that our work that our members have with our contract and just Putting it into language that they that's like accessible for them, um, and then translating this this more simple uh, or ex- more accessible language uh, into other languages, um, so that like our our, uh, our our members who speak Vietnamese um, can uh, have the same kind of understanding as our uh, members who speak Spanish or English, um, and I think that like for um, <clears throat> Um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean I just I think listening is, is key and like actually taking the time to hear people's stories and hear how these things how these problems in our society I- impact them if you're going to try and like work to, to alleviate those circumstances. Um, and just like I said, I- accessibility.
6: Great, great. I think one of the things that is sort of implicit in that statement is to actually talk to your members, right? And we have all these conversations about what's interesting, how to intellectually move people. But at a certain point, you have to get them in a room where their needs are taken care of, where they have food, their kids are taken care of, where they have the mental space to talk about this. And then, like Nina said, you talk to them about the things that already matter to them. And you build your analysis while you're building your members' analysis to understand how the issues of sexual assault at work in Walmart affect the structure and the supply chain of Walmart and what makes it unjust, not only in America, but also abroad, right? And You have those conversations to build an imperial analysis with your leadership and your members.
2: Five, four, three, two, one.
0: You're listening
4: to 3CR Community Radio.
1: A week's solidarity, breaking team, listener, when we're now in caretaker mode in which the government cannot make appointments or decisions, for instance, or, or at least without consultation. So what luck at the end of last week, just before we went into caretaker mode. Remember the government sacked the Disability Rights Commissioner, Graham Innes, more than two years ago because he dared do his job and suggest the government policy left just a bit to be desired, and what do you know? More than two years without a commissioner specific to disability issues, and then the urgency suddenly struck. The very day before caretaker mode... New Commissioner. No reflection on him, but interesting timing, especially given same day new Reserve Bank Governor appointed. Same day new Reserve Bank Director appointed. Caring business class long-term appointments locked in. Oh, and the new Reserve Bank Director... That great fan of the dear baby Jesus, Ian Harpoon the Poor. Remember Ian was the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in the last even darker ages appointment to decide on the minimum wage every year who told us he asked Jesus to advise him what was good for the lowest of low paid, which I'm sure they appreciated. And evil unions could not have, well, should not have, criticised Ian's deliberations with heaven, because it was what Jesus wanted. And indeed, Ian won the Christian Book of the Year a couple of years back with his his exciting tome, Economics for Life, a must-read, we'd agree. And he's also produced that unmissable tome, Christian Theology and Market Economics summed up by the Christian compassion showed by the filthy rich, bloated rich. The dear baby Jesus said the poor shall be always with you and we as dedicated Christians would not question the word of the dear baby, must make sure the poor shall be always with us. Anyway, we should rush out and buy that one in the comfort of knowing future reserve bank decisions will be based on praying that the praying can go on. Although, thank goodness we've got a couple of socially responsible caretakers to warn us this election is far, far more critical than we'd imagined. Sometimes I wish Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist out there on the far right would get something right and didn't have a bolt through the head because he has informed the giant minds he appeals to that whatever happens in the election, the country will swing violently to the left. I read on, imagining some third force parvenu had steeped into the process, but no. Big Supremo Malcolm tun of Bull, or Socialist Party Big Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Short on Ambition, are the uncontrollable commies who will bring capitalism to its knees. If only. Although we may have to respect his view, for after the budget, the big supremo of the Institute of Public Very Private Affairs, John Ross Scum, declared, what the budget actually demonstrates is just how far the political spectrum has swung to the left. Revealing big economic guru scuttle them more lash son must also be a closet commie. A very, very, very closet commie. Any wonder John Roskam must be respected as one of the great thinkers and analysts and deserves his regular column in the True the Aussie capitalist review to issue such dire warnings and in-depth analysis. And the ghosts of elections passed. It was no less than we'd expect of that dedicated socialist and enemy of a caring business class, former, former Socialist Party big supremo Nuclear Hawk himself, at the 125th anniversary celebration of the Shearer's strike and birth of the Socialist Party, rising from his wheelchair to beef out, a Solidarity forever! And he didn't even blush. Nuke would have wheeled his way down to South Troubluwazi to congratulate its big supremo on getting the nuclear report he set out to get when he appointed the pro-nuclear lot who, surprise, surprise, came up with the pro-nuclear report he set out to get. Amazing how these things work out, isn't it? He urged people to assess the report, which includes that True Blue Aussie take all the world's nuclear waste we can safely store for a few hundred thousand years. I was going to say and bury our heads in the sand along with it, but that isn't quite true. For the first decade or three or four, the world's waste will be stored above ground until we can afford to dig a hole with all that wonderful money the nuclear world will give us above ground absolutely, safely of course, urge people to approach the recommendations with an open mind. Now, an important interpretation here which Nuclear Hawk himself would endorse. Those who oppose the nuclear industry and welcoming the world's waste and suggesting there might be just the odd bit of danger involved, the, the odd problem, have a closed mind and haven't thought it through. Those who support the proposals, like the uranium companies and their customers around the world who have been wondering what the hell to do with all this waste, and the team assembled to dredge up the report, have an open mind and have thought it through. Poor Malcolm, well not that poor, escaped from a real voter who broke through the spin doctor barricade here in Melbourne Thursday to get stuck into him about his education policy or or non-policy by taking refuge, that's Malcolm, for lunch in an exclusive men-only club for the filthy super-rich. Imagine it would have been packed with swinging voters. On elections, as changes vital to the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world's poverty-stricken in the land of the free, the land of opportunity, flood the election scenario, vital policies like trample the poor, trample the poor, trample the poor, make America great again, Hillary, 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 make America great again, Donald came up with a doozy, as they say in the U.S. of, I will put... The U.S. up first, he promised, and, and I thought, what a surprise. Last thing we'd expect from a U.S. of big supremo hopeful. Just trying to think, though, of the last U.S. of big supremo who didn't put the U.S. old first. Still in the great policy vacuum, suppose it's something. Also, though, can't think of the last true blue Aussie big supremo who also didn't put the U.S. old first. Big food, as the financial pages label them, the purveyors of junk crap... uh, Sorry, junk food. uh, Even more, sorry, comfort food, although the word food is conceded purely for the sake of argument, concerned that governments are considering legislation to curtail their contribution to world health and fitness, have begun recommending more occasional indulgence in their salt, sugar and fat artificial ingredient delights. Mars... A Mars a day, they've told us for years, now suggest maybe once a week. Nestle recommends but one slice of its pizza range and load it with salad. The sugar drink slots are making similar self-preservation pleas. Surely these responsible boardrooms, good corporate citizens, wouldn't put profit ahead of community welfare, would they? Because I thought... Obviously, naively, surely it would be easier and, well, better if they simply produced healthy real food and stopped producing the crap. Not crap, this debate about retrospectivity. The socialists agree the caring business class should not be hit with retrospectivity. Those already ripping off on negative gearing must be able to keep ripping off. Those who are ripping off on super concessions for the filthy rich must keep ripping off, while it is the caring business class party on the latter that argues they should rip off just a little less. Great believers in the law, the caring business class itself, says tax changes must never be retrospective. How can we have confidence and particularly certainty if governments can just change taxes willy-nilly? Oh, so your incessant campaign to lower corporate taxes and taxes for the filthy rich and then to lower them again and again, you believe lower taxes must not be retrospective, must only apply to future filthy rich. Good heavens, where did that come from? Of course there's retrospective and there's retrospective. There's also seven weeks of this election torture to go, by the way. Remember last week we talked about the Lord Rupert of Wapping's sin-sensitive coverage of a young True Blue Aussie Muslim killed in Iraq. Obliterated by an American airstrike, it boasted. The sour cream of True Blue Aussie youth, craven young men and women not in uniform. Well, the news got even better this week. His wife and baby were also obliterated by the U.S. of good-guy-trained killers, Lord Rupert told us breathlessly. Well, Islamic babies are all potential terrorists. That, that's why the Coalition of the Killing, including True has a moral obligation to obliterate wedding parties, potential terrorist-breeding wombs wiped out, obliterated. Finally, comparable moral obligation. There's been agreement and disagreement among our ethical economic giants, the Big Four Banks, See, since this kerfuffle over a few minor problems like ripping off big time and the threat of a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission, they've drawn up this banking and finance oath. And the, uh, and the agreement bit? They agree to a person there most definitely must not be a Royal Kanga mission because that would ruin the country. No personal interest or self-preservation here. But they disagree with signing the oath put beautifully by worst Pack supremo Lindsay maximised profits instead. Just because I've signed that, does that make me a better person? Let's reassure him. No, Lindsay, it doesn't. Good morning.
3: And this is a perfect point for us to be talking to Humphrey McQueen. How are you, Humphrey?
2: Good. Boy, I was just thinking the same thing. It is the perfect segue, isn't it, to the Royal Commission and the banks and the banks.
3: Yeah, fantastic. This particular...
2: I mean, just... Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, they're all coming together to sign an oath together. What, of course, they've done for over 100, 150 years is to come together to fix interest rates. So it isn't the first time there's been an association of... Uh, banks are doing a deal. They normally do them in secret, but this one they've needed to do in public.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. I was going to say that one of the mantras of this particular government, which is so uh, neoliberal it's, it's hard to even say it, that it, in a whole lot of its different speeches by different members of its uh, uh, little army, they're constantly giving the impression that only true in the only truly independent person is a person who works for finance. Oh. Well, you yeah. see when they were talking about the superannuation stuff, they're yeah. uh, they're talking about how you can't have representatives of a member organization, i.e. unions, being oh. on a board because they're not independent, while having a person who's part oh, of a yeah, bank yeah. or something like that. They are intrinsically uh <laughs> Uh, independent, and that actually there's, uh, money is value free
2: yes well <laughs> i think I think what we 're going to talk about today gives a somewhat different angle on the relationship between independence and indeed between bourgeois democracy and the power of the financial institutions
3: um, we 're going to delve back into how Queensland became. Uh, move from being a radical uh, entity to a conservative entity, which is... Well,
2: yeah, indeed. I mean, we we can start there. I mean, perhaps you should, you know, say to people that what we're talking about is drawn from about an 11,000-word compilation I put together, which is up on the 3CR site.
3: Hopefully. I I haven't actually investigated, but um, But, I was really... I have actually read it, and it's all about banks. It's about how banks and the finance people actually shape... Our democracy and uh, Queensland is a perfect example. So we've got we've got Griffith, uh, oh, and it's also a perfect example because so many of these names that get thrown up are lauded as being good fellows and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you look at Griffith, who was a, a, a premier of uh, Queensland and uh, one of the uh, federation um, flunkies, uh, he was a, he was a scoundrel.
2: Well, he wasn't the biggest scoundrel, but there was a lot of competition. If <laughs> you yeah, put it like that. Um, he, I mean, he, he drafted the, uh, what, well, what became the Australian Constitution. We might just segue briefly into there and point out, of course, that when it got to England, where, of course, it had to be an act of the British Parliament, which we couldn't do it ourselves, we had to, they had to do it for us. When we got there... Um, the British Parliament and the Colonial Secretary Chamberlain said, well, we've got to have appeals to the Privy Council in order to protect British investors. And they rewrote the Australian Constitution that had been approved by the Australian people. Now, to go back, as you say, to Sir Samuel Griffith and the Griffith Society, this reactionary organisation that says the Constitution's perfect and must never be changed in any way, um, unlike it was on behalf of the British investors in 1900 and 1901, this organisation, Griffith was in bed with the really crooked Premier up there, um, St. Thomas McElwraith. Uh. And they formed a coalition which was called the Griffel Wraith. Um, <laughs> and um, McElwraith went to court over his fraudulent banking and other investment activities, and the Chief Justice, who was a radical, um, convicted him. And then on the Court of Appeal, he was, you know, no, no, no he isn't guilty at all. And then he forced the um, Chief Justice out and... Um, and then formed the alliance with. Um, well, he'd already had the alliance with um, Sam, um, and Sam O'Griffith then became the chief justice. And so those kinds of deals were going on, and eventually, well, not eventually. The the London investors, who were the ones who were losing their shirt, over this kind of crooked behaviour because it was their funds that were coming in they just said, no more money Um, we're just not going to arrange for any more uh, loans to the Australian colonies. Victoria was in a similar situation, of course because of the big land boom scandals down there in which the um, uh, Bailews and others had been involved Um, the wonderful Michael Cannon book, The Land Boomers if you haven't read it, you must Uh, but uh, the it is the London the London loan market that has determined the shape of it well in those decades, the shape of Australian political life because as they said, if you don't behave the way we want you to, we will cut off your Flow of funds. I mean, they were quite explicit uh, in saying we actually control the politics. Wages are too high, you've got all these strikers going on in Australia. If we cut your funds off, you'll have to screw down on them and that'll be good for you, meaning the bourgeoisie in Queensland or where, South Australia or wherever it was, and it'll also be good, even better, for the big investors in the... Um, um, UK, organised through the City of London, through the Westminster Bank, through Lord Glendine. these were the people, a tiny number of people, who organised to put money into when these loans were floated um, in the um, uh, London bond market. So, they had a direct interest, and they made it very clear, I mean, mean, this isn't us uh, imagining what they were thinking, they actually put this into words and into print, so the evidence is all there about what the Colonial Office did to protect the British investors, what the british um, what the city of London, as it 's called, the tiny financial sector, and that of course, is what boris johnson 's campaigning for, apart from his own um, advances they 're still they 're still there. Um, They don't want any of these EU rules, mild though they might be, on the financial practices because that would mean that the scandals that the City of London gets up to, um, fixing interest rates over there still, those things would come under greater control and that's why Boris Johnson and people around them are... um, you know, are campaigning to, to get themselves out of the um, European Union for fear. Not that there'll be control over the size of a sweet potato, but there'll be a size over the sweet deals that these banks do with each other to uh, generally rip off other capitalists, one might say, as well as the general public. But so, so what ask- you're
3: really saying is that it's like a good uh, murder mystery. It's always follow the money.
2: Well, indeed, follow the money, and rarely does the buffalo do it. It's the banker that does it. And the reason for that is that the banker has a very particular and vital role within the capitalist system. You can't have capitalism without big banks. Um, This this notion, oh, capitalism would be all right if it weren't for these evil bankers. Mm -hmm. No, that's not how it works. The banks are there necessarily to organise the financial system for all of the capitalist system, as well as to provide funds for particular um, um, companies and corporations. Uh, and that's their role within the system. But like the state apparatus, they run in tandem with it. And what the banks do as well, as I was just saying, they look to the to the... Sort of total interest of all of capital, and they say, look, if you're going to have these sorts of policies, that's okay, but you're not going to get any more money, um, and you can see that, you know, uh, well, I mean, there's if we could jump right ahead, in the mid 1980s, after Hawke and Keating had opened the door to all of the banks to come in and for financial deregulation, which was perhaps the biggest change of all the things that they did in those years, what uh, uh, Keating discovered was that Salomon Brothers, who were the people who were raising funds in the New York market, because, of course, by then, uh, no longer was the City of London the dominant financial power in the world that had moved across to Manhattan, what they found out was that Salomon Brothers rang up the... uh, Treasury in Australia and, and said, and I'm quoting now, are having difficulty maintaining his position of support for Australia. An increasing number of our clients are beginning to think of cutting their losses, now some 20%. Uh, and what this meant was that the Australian government then had to change two of the decisions it had made. One was to impose a 15% tax on the uh, foreign investments, um, and the other was to control the percentage that foreign investors could put into any particular piece of real estate. They were two policies that they had in um, in 80, uh, 1985. And Solomon Brothers makes a phone call, and the policies are out the window. So just just a, just a little,
3: so ju- just a little gentle, understated conversation on the phone was yep. able to alter the course of Australian politics. Now, if we go back to yes. the earlier part of this conversation, uh, you argue, it could be argued, that the whole razzle-dazzle of federation was actually a uh, method by which the states were trying to circumvent the rap over the knuckles regarding their bad behaviour and their trying to resume conversations that would allow funds to come back into the colonies right
2: yeah i mean i mean there were a number of things of course you know that were driving the uh, federation i mean but if, know, if we follow the, the money immigration and things but on the principle as you say of follow the money because they had borrowed all this um, money in the in the 1980s into the early um, sorry 1890s yeah that's um, right
3: oh isn't it funny it's actually very yeah, similar I know. <laughs>
2: It, only, oh, seems like it uh, only seems like yesterday. It only seems like yesterday. The uh, because of that, and then there'd been all these, you know, blow-ups in the in the in the land market, particularly in real estate. You know, frauds and scams and things. Um, Just
3: that, like now, as well.
2: Well, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, I see the real estate uh, people putting up a putting up an ad. I mean, a, 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 I suppose the one advantage they have is they're not second-hand car salespeople in terms of credibility. (laughs) But anyway, they were out there and a lot of the money had just been poured down the sink in a sense. And the British investors had lost money in the Argentine the year before and they were worried about whether they were ever going to see the colour of their money again. And they said, we're not going to give you any more. And a number of people in Australia were pointing out that the security of the... Getting loans from uh, London would be much easier. You'd get a lower rate of interest and you'd get more money if the guarantee was not from colony to colony, but for the whole of the Australian economy. So that if things, if you lent money to Queensland and they had a bad economy up there, you'd still get your money back because the rest of Australia would be responsible for it. And That was one of the arguments that was put forward, particularly in Victoria, where it had been most uh, severely hit. And we're talking about people being hit down there. We're talking about the poor and the workers being hit. We're not talking about the bankers and the investors because they had this wonderful scheme called secret compositions by which they didn't go bankrupt. They just paid their creditors as little as one farthing in every pound. Um, Transferral of believe. risk.
3: Yeah. Transferral uh, of risk.
2: That's 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 how they got out of it. So um it was a way of, as you say, of getting back into the good books of the City of London, of saying, look, we're not just six in in individual colonies who you're going to have to deal with. We are all of the Australian uh, economy. And more generally what they were promising was that all of Australia would become a single market area, that investment in one part of Australia could then provide goods and services. So you weren't having six steelworks established and therefore squandering that total amount of uh, uh, investment. You could just have one or two. So it was a way of reorganising the finances Uh, at the government level and at the corporate level, that it would guarantee more security. But the people for whom security was uh, uppermost were the London investors. That's why the Australian Constitution was rewritten by the English Parliament, by the British Parliament. And the, the three Australians had gone over there to see the Constitution through. They almost spat the dummy and came home and said, well, we're not going to have... Federation at all most people aren't aware of that uh, and there was a compromise struck um, by which it said well not all cases can be appealed to the Privy Council because that was the protection um, that the you know the, any legal suit over where where your money had gone and would you get it back uh, would go to the Privy Council and not just to the High Court in Australia uh, they said well the it the High Court can allow on appeal for cases of this kind to go to the Privy Council, which was the situation until 1982 when they abolished all appeals to the Privy Council. Uh, But it's the security of the City of London that was uh, uppermost through this. And the next big time this blows up is in Queensland, where, as you mentioned at the beginning, you've got a very radical government up there in 1915. Uh, And it stays pretty radical... Um, until 1923, 24. And what they wanted to do, what got them into the biggest trouble, was they wanted to make the people who... The big corporations, and a lot of them were British-based land companies, who were effectively not paying any rent for their leaseholds. They wanted... Oh my get. God!
3: It's like we're déjà vu, Humphrey. It afraid.
2: is, it is, it is. So they wanted to get some money out of them, and they were putting up the, the rent. And uh, what you know, the links between back in England, those investors and the financial centre? They said, "Well, you can do that if you like, but you're not going to get any money." And Theodore, the uh, Labor uh, the Premier of Queensland then went and borrowed money, alarmingly, not in London.
3: No, in New went, York.
2: Went to New York. But the problem there was, in order to get money out of New York, you had to pay a higher rate of interest. That's right. And Theodore knew that he couldn't keep doing that. In um, one point, even the Commonwealth... Had to do that with a very conservative government, but the rate of interest was too high, and they had to come to heel, and that brought them to heel. And there was no doubt. Again, the British financial press spell out exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. That there's too much, uh, not just over the, uh, over putting up some kind of uh, charge for the use of these public lands, um, but all these other policies they had about you know, industrial arbitration and uh, workers' health and safety. and you know, uh, In fact, the Conservatives uh, used to joke, well, I mean, it was a black joke from their point of view, that the, 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 the Labor government in Queensland had done something for everybody in the state except the private member's son, and they concocted this fake notion that there would be legislation to provide support for the private member's son. Well, that doesn't come into effect in reality, of course, until Joe Bielke-Peterson gets to be Premier and he builds a road to his son's property. Uh, But this notion that all these radical progressive schemes were coming through Queensland from 1915, plus the leadership, of course, of the anti-conscription campaign um, 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 out of Queensland, all of these things uh, conspired in the minds of the City of London to cut Queensland off without the loans until they abandoned these radical policies. Uh, So that the pattern that has gone across and we see it in the great depression shortly afterwards the bank of england sends out sir otto niemeyer and says this is what you've got to do and you must do it otherwise we'll cut your funds off again um, well it's
3: kind of fascinating to me on a couple of levels here because uh, of course it's always been since i've been alive the mantra was that uh, queensland is you know uh, Absolutely redneck material, and it's, uh, it's very conservative. But obviously its roots were not so. And it reminds me of Menzies, who had a stranglehold over Australian politics, mm-hmm. this, this idea that it was impossible for the country to exist without Menzies and the LNP. L- L- and uh, I remember, because I came from Warrnambool, that uh, there's a plaque down there that says that... Uh, the uh, National Farmers Federation was instituted in Warrnambool and the first speaker at their inaugural event was Menzies. And apparently the, they sent invitations to a whole lot of different politicians, but he was the only one who had the acumen to uh, actually accept. And, uh, and interestingly enough, even though the south-west of Victoria is for 50 years or more, has been returning these uh, Liberal Party members uh, before that, it was also a ra- a a, a, um, a region that was quite radical. So yeah. what we're seeing is this forming of the notion that uh, that we as the convict class should just uh, kowtow to our betters. I think.
2: Well, the I mean there was an undergraduate song that went, there'll always be a Menzies and Menzies never fails as long as nothing happens to the Bank of New South Wales. Uh Uh, Now, Menzies, of course, being a Victorian politician, wasn't really very close to the Bank of New South Wales in his early days by any means. Uh, His links down there, um, in the early 1930s, during the midst of the Depression, uh, were with the big... A merchant banker and stockbroker J.B. Ware of capital Court, of the, of the top end of Collins Street. And Ware and Menzies and four others formed a thing called The Group. Not The Groupers, but The Group. And their first job was to get Joe Lyons to leave the Labor Party and lead a new anti-Labour coalition which becomes the United Australia Party. And this is what they do uh, in secret. Um, they arrange for this political manoeuvre that changes the face of Australian politics. Uh, that's the first thing they do. And and the group continues. Um, there's, uh, it's, it's an Australian the...
3: version of a coup, right?
2: Well, but behind-the-scenes coup in this case. Uh, I mean, it has to be ratified... Um, Um, at the election, they have to bring the Labor government down, which wasn't all that difficult, given that, A, it was pretty pusillanimous in itself, and, B, it only had seven of the 36 members of the Australian Senate. So it didn't actually even have a capacity to get even weak legislation through, let alone anything else. But, again, Theodore had now become federal treasurer. He wanted to have an inflationary issue of £16 million to revive the economy. And that, again, outraged everybody, of course, this um, way of uh, stimulating the economy. Uh, This was condemned as inflation. Um, London got outraged again. Um, And in New South Wales, where something similar was tried under Jack Lang, um, the Premier there steps in and sacks the elected Premier of New South Wales. Um, and it's worth reminding ourselves, bizarrely, that constitutionally the Australian states were still British colonies. That doesn't change until, well, really 1942. Oh, my so, goodness, that's so I interesting. know, it is bizarre, but that the governor still had this colonial prerogative that he could engage in, different to what Kerr, could operate under um, because the power there that Kerr operated under was another of the bits that had been put into the Constitution or kept there in the Constitution in order to protect the British investors in 1900. Um, and his, his power to act without the advice of the Executive Council uh, was one of the things that was there to preserve the interests of the British investors in Australia in the first place. But Menzies is locked into this deal with... Um, um, Where? JB Ware and the investment house, um, and this continues on, and his links into Joe Lyons are there. And you know, I've got stories in there about how he says, "Look, um, your prime minister, I, I put you in as prime minister. My brother is in danger of losing his job in the federal public service. Do something." And lo and behold, little Joe, the cuddly koala bear, says, "Yes, of course." Bob, I will, I will do that for you.
3: We have um, to finish there, Humphrey. We've come to the end of the... I
2: know. Uh, anyway, all of this, the 11,000 words of it, I hope are up on the 3CR site for people to get and it's available to everybody. You know, we operate on copy left. There's no copyright.
3: <laughs> Thanks very much for talking to us today, Humphrey. My and
2: pleasure. Great. Uh, we'll talk Bye-bye, to you soon. Annie.
3: Bye. And uh, we have to get out of here. I can't even give you a roundup because we're running so late. Uh, I'm going to go out with uh, the uh, trade union choir. I f- recorded them singing Solidarity Forever at the uh, International Memorial for Workers' Day. And coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. Oh, there is a better
4: way,
1: raising issues every day work to
2: live, not just for pay,
0: with our union we have
4: a say,
0: justice the beacon that lights our way, today we stand in solidarity, and offer comfort to the families, who could imagine seeing days like
2: these, we know. There
6: is a better way, we know there is a better way.